Amen. Well, Pastor Moody uh, is continuing his preaching series called Songs of Victory, and he's preaching from Psalm 60 today. So I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 60, and I invite you to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 60. That's also going to be on your screen. So church family, hear God's Word. Oh God... You have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing this morning our series in the book of Psalms, and we've got to Psalm 60 in this series, Songs of Victory. And we're looking at these Psalms in particular because it has seemed to us that we are living in a time where there is quite evident uh, challenge in terms of conflict and um, war even on the global stage, uh, but also there seems to be both uh, the personal and cultural sense that we're living in a time of, of conflict. If you look at the statistics, it seems very evident that many people these days are sensing internal conflict. There is increasing um, evidence of mental health challenges and uh, various kinds of uh, psychological, and uh, as Christians, uh, also spiritual, we discern, internal challenges. But then also there are cultural conflicts. We live in a time, particularly in this country, where it is very apparent that there are different streams of cultural emphasis that uh, run against each other and create conflicts and expose undergirding values of one kind or another. And so for these reasons, both on the global, personal, and cultural level, it has seemed to us important to look at what the Bible says about spiritual battle. Of course, uh, we who are Christians here this morning, and we don't assume that you necessarily are a Christian. We, we love it when there are people who come to College Church who are searching the things of God, and we want to uh, articulate our faith in such a way that it's accessible to those who are not Christians, but if you are a Christian, you are aware that the Bible teaches that we are always in a spiritual war. It was Erasmus 
the great Renaissance scholar, in his text Enchiridion, which means a guidebook. He wrote a guidebook to Christian faith many years ago, and Erasmus said that one of the keys was to realize that we're all in a battle. And the current popular phrase, be careful with the person around you. You don't know what kind of battle they are fighting. We're all in a battle, and as Christians, we know we're in a spiritual war. And so it seemed to us important to look at what the Bible says about fighting that battle and indeed how to win it. And of course, there are many different places in the Bible we go to for that, uh, but we've gone to the book of Psalms. And the reason why we've gone to the book of Psalms, look at these songs of victory, is because Psalms, we have discovered, is particularly designed to reconnect our emotions to the truth of God's Word and to the King, King Jesus the Christ. And much of what's going on in the culture and personally, not so much globally, though of course that also affects emotions, but what's going on culturally and emotionally is an is a emotional, um, um, uh, affectional disturbance, a sense in which we feel versus thing, various things and how they connect to the truth of other things is not apparent to us. And so the Psalms is a particularly important tool to reconnect our emotions to truth, and that's that's uh, so a, a task that in our emotive day, where we're constantly being bombarded with images and feelings rather than logic and truth, we need to make sure whether we are a Christian yet or we, I pray God willing, will become a Christian, that we reconnect our emotions to what is true and don't be led by the nose, by our feelings, but instead be led by our mind, by what is true and let feelings follow along. And Psalms is particularly important for that task. And in these songs of victory, we have seen already uh, Psalm chapter 2 that diagnoses the issue that we're facing today, and indeed every day with these conflicts, is ultimately a spiritual one. The reason why there is conflict is because we live in a world that has an ultimate conflict between the nations and God. And that is the real conflict, and all these other conflicts are merely symptoms of the ultimate conflict. And the, the psalm, Psalm 2, then says the solution to that is that we will bow the knee before King Jesus. And we do that in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our church lives, and in our culture. It has a ripple effect of peace. When we make peace with King Jesus, He establishes a rule of peace. And so Psalm 2 called us to make peace with Him, to bow the knee before King Jesus. Psalm 20 had a different tone and a different theme to it. Psalm 20 was very much a celebration psalm, and it was encouraging those of us who are Christians to take our confidence in both hands and to realize that because Jesus is the King, therefore we who are in His kingdom will win. He has won the victory. He died and rose again, as we'll be celebrating at Easter. Because He won the victory, we are in His kingdom, know that ultimately we will win too, and therefore to take courage and confidence. Well, we come, as I said, to Psalm 60 this morning, and Psalm 60 has a slightly different emphasis and message, again, under that overall rubric of the Psalms as a whole and the songs of victory as a whole. And Psalm 60 is telling us that when it seems, when circumstances tell us that God has rejected us. The theme of rejection runs throughout this psalm, and that's the question that it has to answer. What happens when it seems that God has rejected you or rejected us? 
The Psalm 60 is saying, when circumstances tell us that God has rejected us, what are we to do? And his answer is, we are to go back to God's Word, the Scriptures, and to trust in God alone. So Psalm 60 is saying to us, when it seems as if God has rejected you, and perhaps you feel that this morning, whether personally or in your family life or culturally or globally, you say to yourself, surely God has rejected us. Surely God is no longer on our side. We have on our money in America, in God we trust. And perhaps you wonder, well, is God really with us? There are racial tensions, there are social tensions, and perhaps you feel those tensions in your own life as well. Is God truly with you? When you have that question, what you need to do, Psalm 60 says, is go back to God's Word, the Scriptures, and trust in God alone. And of course, that's a very important message and uh, what I want to do this, for the rest of the time this morning then is to establish that that is what the psalm is saying and then apply it to us in a way that I trust God by His Spirit will use to create a real shift in our own hearts and minds to go back to God and His Word and trust in God alone. So if you have a Bible open, turn with me to it and you'll see to begin with that there is a historical context. So when you're studying the Scriptures... If you possibly can, you want to establish the context. And the Psalms, somewhat uniquely, have often a historical context that is given to us, but is not 100% certain. So if you have the book of Psalms open, you'll see there is what scholars call an ascription, that is a few words at the head of the Psalm that were put there by the editor to give us a sense of what the historical background was. In other words, David wrote this psalm, we believe, but why did he write it? What was going on? What was the story? And the first, uh, uh, the ascription of this psalm is put there by the original editor that put together the book of Psalms uh, for this theme of reconnecting our emotions to the Word, to the Christ. It's put there by the original editor to give us what he thought was the historical background. Now, what's tricky about it is that it is very precise, but it's hard for us to precisely define what historical background he is referring to. So he says, to the choir master, that is the musician, according to Shushas Eduth, uh, that is some kind of musical notation, a miktam, again, perhaps a musical notation or a poetic uh, structure of David, it's uh, about David or for David or written by David, for instruction. So this psalm is intended to teach us something, and as I've said, I believe it's intended to teach us when we sense that circumstances mean that God has rejected you, you go back to God's Word and trust in God alone, but we'll see that as we go through. It's a message, it has an instruction, and here's the background, here's the story. When he, that is David, strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Well, the original readers would have known what that meant, but we don't know precisely. What are the options? One scholar called Derek Kidner believes that this is referring to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and in that story, there's a battle that takes place in the Valley of Salt, which is, I assume, why he thinks it's referring to that story. And this, he thinks, is showing us another part of that story, which is while Second Samuel 8 describes unending victories for David, this part of the ascription of the psalm tells us that there was a defeat 
that then had to be um, resolved, and this psalm David sang um, to uh, show that God would rescue them and to instruct his army and his people how God would res- rescue them. And so Derek Kidner, a great scholar, uh, believed that it's about Second Samuel chapter 8. That's certainly a valid option. Another option uh, was that actually it's about an earlier part of David's life, Uh, from when he was uh, fighting against King Saul, the previous king. Those of us who are Bible students will know that uh, King Saul uh, was rejected by God. And so this psalm then could be referring to that feeling that God's people had that they had been rejected because Saul had been rejected. And then David came along and now they had victory. I myself uh, lean towards that interpretation. Uh, It was the interpretation of a man called Charles Simeon who wrote in the 18th century in his um, work called Horai Homiletikai, which is just a a Latin for saying a, a series of outlines for sermons. But Simeon was a great preacher, but he was also a scholar himself from Cambridge University, and I lean to Simeon's interpretation because, well, he came from Cambridge. What can you say? So, but no, seriously, I think he was probably right. But, I, but Derek Kidner is a great scholar, and normally when I read what Derek Kidner says, I tend to agree with him. But in this case, I agree with Simeon. But in any case, whichever you go with, We know that there was a background where there was a potential defeat. God has rejected us. What are we going to do? And so then the psalm gives the answer. What is the answer? Well, there are three movements to the psalm. The first movement is reconciling, uh, is recognizing rather, the real issue. It's being frank about it and how important that is. You're never going to win a battle until you realize you're in one. You're never going to reconcile the fact that you sense you've been rejected by God until you recognize you have been. And so the first three verses are saying this is the reality of the situation. We are in a spiritual battle. We need to face up to it. And then the second movement has the answer. And then the third movement is a call to confidence as a result of the answer. So in the first movement, he's recognizing and and facing up to the real issue. He says, oh God, you have rejected us. That's the reality. You've broken our defenses. You have been angry. That is the truth. And then he says, And there's prayer, of course, throughout the psalm, oh, restore us. And he's frank about what it felt like, too. You have made the land to quake. You've tore it open, repair its breaches for its totters. He could be referring to a literal earthquake. In all likelihood, though, um, I think that David is describing what it feels like. Remember, the psalms are intended to reconnect our emotions to the Word, to Christ. He's describing what it feels like when you think that God has rejected you. It feels like the, the ground beneath your feet is shaking. Everything you took as solid, your marriage you took as permanent, your, your children you, you, you thought would outlive you, your, your job that you thought you retire in, you, your, your, the, the, the peace of the world that you thought was, was moving forward in a more positive sense. All this seems to have gone, and now the land is shaking. It's like there's an earthquake, and the ground is not solid under your feet, and that's what it feels like when you think that God has rejected you. And he carries on, you've made your people see hard things. Remember, this is a time of war. They would have seen bloodshed and death and mayhem. And those people who are in Ukraine are seeing hard things. And those of us who go on social media and try to figure out what on earth is going on in that brutal war that is taking place where there's much that is evil that is happening, 
uh, are also, when we see the social media, seeing hard things. And when you see hard things and you're, you're faced with the reality in a wartime, it can then deeply impact you. I will long remember a man that I knew who was in Vietnam and had been a sniper in Vietnam. And as he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he told me that the hard thing for him was what he had seen through his telescope. He had seen hard things. And when you see hard things, it can traumatize you and leave you with a sense of, of, of despair, of uh, emotional disconnection. You've seen hard things. It affects you physically and emotionally, and there is trauma, and that is what the people at the time had been through. They had seen hard things. What is more, you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. There are two options here what this means. It could be that in this trauma they were going through, it felt as if they were drunk. It felt as if they were intoxicated. They could hardly stand up straight. They were so emotionally disturbed, they could hardly walk down the street. And it was like they were staggering with alcohol. They were drunk. They were intoxicated. They're they were physically overcome. It was like they were in a, in a panic. They couldn't walk even. It could mean that. Or it could mean that given the trauma they'd been through, so many of them turned to what so many people turn to when they go through trauma. That is the bottle. That is alcohol. That is drugs. And it is by no happenstance that in our day, when there's been so much trauma, People have turned to pills and drugs to try and ease the pain and to alcohol. And it is a sign of God's rejection that, that people turn for anything, anything they can find that will ease the pain. And that is what God's people were going through. You've, you've made us wine to drink that made us stagger. That, 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 that's all we have left, he's saying. We can just ease the pain. There's nothing left. So he's very frank with the reality of what it means when you sense that God has rejected you. But there is an answer. And the answer is given in verses 4 to 8. And essentially, the answer is twofold. He says, look to the banner and listen to the word. So he says, first of all, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. So what is this banner that they are to look to? Well, the answer is that David is referring to the banner whose name is the Lord. The Lord has set over us a banner that Moses described in Exodus chapter 17 when he built an altar after he had defeated the Amalekites, an altar, of course, to sacrifice for, pe for God's people's sins. And he said, you set a banner over us whose name is the Lord. And so this banner was the altar, the sacrifice that David uh, made sure happened that in the sanctuary, we'll see this is taking place in the sanctuary in the moment, there was an altar, there was a sacrifice for their sins, and this was the banner that they now knew that God had not rejected them. They now knew that God loved them, for there was a sacrifice for their sins. There was a banner over them that said, I love you and you are mine. And that banner, as we who are Christians will know, is ultimately fulfilled in the cross. And that's why we're celebrating communion this morning. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are a banner that points to Jesus' death on the cross. The Lord's Supper and communion is a banner for the New Testament Christian that points back to the cross. But either way, it's a banner that tells us that God loves us. 
You are my beloved. I love you. God has not rejected you. I'm for you. I gave my own son for you. How would I not also give you all things? What then can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or death or disease? No, nothing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. How do we know that when we're going through mayhem? How do we know that when the land is quaking beneath our feet? How do we know that when personally or culturally or globally there's conflict? The answer, there's a banner, the cross. Jesus died for us, and God therefore loves us. He has demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, uh, Christ died for us. So we look to the banner, and then we listen to the Word, verse eight, uh, verse 6. rather. God has spoken, this is the Word that is spoken, in His holiness, or literally, from the sanctuary. I believe this is a Word that was preached when God's people gathered. They, they had the sacrifice. And we first had the communion table that points back to Jesus. And then they listened to the word that was spoken. The word was preached. And what did God say? God spoke in the sanctuary the following. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Now, for us, that seems impenetrable. We don't know what it means. But uh, as the scholar Goldingay explained, Shechem and Succoth were symbolic of the east and the west of the Jordan. And so what the word that was spoken is saying is it's reminding God's people that God had promised that they would cross the Jordan into the promised land, and they did. And the land that He had promised was theirs, and it would be theirs. And it's a reminder with exhortation, I will do that, and He did. And then verse 7, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Again, these uh, names don't mean much to us, but as that same scholar Goldingay explained, these names are names that indicate both the northern and the southern parts of the kingdom. And what God is saying is, this kingdom, these people are mine. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. In other words, when God's people go into battle... When they wage war spiritually, it is God Himself who is waging war. The body of Christ is the church. It is His body. As Jesus said about the church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Disease, famine, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And those of us who are worried about what would happen because of COVID, whether it's going to disrupt the church. Let me tell you this. If Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, we can be for sure that COVID will not prevail against the gates of the church. Is that true? No way. If the gates of hell will not prevail, how could anything possibly stop God's purposes for His church? And similarly, in the Old Testament, they're saying here, the word that is preached, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. God inhabits the praises of His people, and He's saying here that these are my people. And then He turns to the enemies all around, which in those days were physical enemies of God's people, Moab and the Philistines, and for us today uh, who are having a spiritual battle against the forces of darkness, the spiritual enemies. And he says here, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now again, these uh, terms here are a little hidden for us, but they would have meant a lot to the original authors. Moab, which is uh, part of uh, one of the enemies of God's people, is merely, God is saying, my wash basin. In other words, Moab is merely where I wash my feet. But almost 
Certainly, it is even more rude than that, as Josephus, the great uh, uh, Jewish historian, described. The word here for wash basin was uh, a, 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 vest, a, 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 um, a vestibule, a, a, a container that was used for washing and containing all sorts of slightly disreputable things. It's, it was a wash basin. It is, I suppose we might say, if you were French, a bidet. It's a place for washing all sorts of stuff. And so God is saying, it's just my wash basin. You're frightened about Moab, don't be. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, and of course that means that it's a place of possession. When you take off your shoes, when you get home, it means you're home. It means that you own the place. You're no longer in battle. I just take off my shoe, and I own the place. And over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now the um, editors, the translators of our Bible have, um, have put there, over Philistia I shout in triumph. You'll note if you have a modern translation that there's a footnote which says that the Masoretic text, which is just meaning the Hebrew text, has it over me, O Philistia, shout in triumph. And most translators turn it around to say that God is shouting in triumph over Philistia. But in my view, and I could be wrong, and, and I may well be, but in my view, uh, what God is actually saying here is uh, he's standing there as the leader in the battle. You remember, he's, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah's my scepter. He's the one who's fighting. He's leading the charge, and he's looking at Philist the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, and he's saying, you triumph over me. You try it on me. You think you're going to triumph over me? He's, he's going to take the hits, and, and it, it goes back, of course, to the banner. God will take the hit. He will let apparently sin and the devil triumph over him at the cross only to turn it around and rise again. He will take the hit. You, you try and triumph over me. And so there's great confidence that then is given to God's people for God is fighting the battle both from looking at the banner and from listening to the Word. And then that confidence needs to be owned and that is verses 9 to 12. And so the question then is, who will bring me to the fortified city? Now, again, that would have meant a lot to the original hearers, but we need to make sure we understand what is being said. So almost certainly, the fortified city is the city that is known to us as Petra. And Petra is an impenetrable fortress. Petra is built into the rock, and to get to Petra, you have to go three-quarters of a mile through a very narrow cavern that is uh, no more than 10 feet wide and can run from 300 to 600 feet high. It can be defended by just a few people against an army of thousands. That's the fortified city. Who, who, who could possibly take me to the fortified city? Of course, the answer is only God. But then he says... Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. But then he remembers what has been spoken. No, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. The land is his. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. No, he is with God's people. He has not rejected them. And so then he prays, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man." 
We go back to God's Word and trust in God alone, not for other means of salvation, not for other methods of salvation, not to people to save you, but ultimately to God and to God alone. And so he says, concluding verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is He, it is God alone who will tread down our foes. So when God, when it seems as if circumstances telling you that God has rejected you, what do you do? The answer is you go back to God's Word and you trust in God alone, not in the circumstances, not in the people, not in the situation, but in God alone. And you go back to God's Word, you hear what He's saying to you, and then you trust in God alone. And so as we think through how do we apply that, the answer is very simply, first of all, go back to God's Word. Let us as a church be a people who go back to God's Word. In the sanctuary, we listen to God's Word. We hear God's Word. Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Let us go back to God's Word. Let us study God's Word in men's Bible study, in women's Bible study, in our adult communities. Let us not disparage God's Word, but go back to God's Word in our personal times as well. You know, every now and then, we have to, as Christians, uh, with regularity, uh, remind ourselves of the truth of the Bible. The Bible is reliable as God's Word. Uh, I, I just read again of a preacher in another part of the country saying he doesn't preach from the Bible anymore because it was put together by Christians, and he instead preaches the resurrection of Jesus. Well, I'm glad he preaches the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm not glad that he thinks the Bible is just put together by people. Nonsense. Nonsense. No, of course, the Bible, the documents of the Bible were recognized by the New Testament church, but they were recognized as written by God. That's the point. Let let me give you an illustration. Say uh, there's a beautiful painting that is on the wall, written by, uh, uh, painted by Van Gogh or Van Gogh, and there are people whose job it is to decide whether a particular painting is a a genuine, a genuine Van Gogh or not, a genuine Van Gogh or not. And they look at the painting, they look at the brush strokes, and they decide, yes, that's a Van Gogh, and therefore it's worth millions, whereas, you know, something else that I might paint will be worth absolutely nothing. But that's a Van Gogh, and it's worth millions because it was, it was painted by the great master himself. And an art critic says, yes, that was painted by Van Gogh. But, but the art critic's not Van Gogh. He's recognizing who painted it. And very similarly, the uh, New Testament uh, was uh, written by the apostles, inspired by God. The, the people spoke as God breathed through them. All scriptures, God breathed. And the, uh, the early church looked at the documents and they said, Yes, that is a Van Gogh. Yes, that is apostolic or with apostolic author- authorization. And yes, that's written by an apostle, inspired by God, that is authorized by apostles, inspired by God, that's a Van Gogh. And therefore, we go back to the Scriptures with absolute confidence that these are written by God as He breathed out through human authors. So, go back to the Word. Don't ignore the Word. There is the power. There is the truth. There is the reliability. That's how you reconnect your emotions to the Word, to Christ. It will give you a solid foundation so that the earth stops quaking and shaking beneath your feet. You'll know what is true now. Go back to the Word, but then also go and trust in God alone. And as I was thinking through how to 
finish this sermon with a, a good illustration that would illustrate what it means to trust in God alone. I think there's no better place to go than the, 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 the story that was told about Jesus Himself from the Scriptures when He died on the cross. And you remember that Jesus, when He died on the cross, was crucified between two criminals. And one criminal said to him, uh, the, uh, disparaged him and uh, railed against him, and uh, that was one criminal. The other criminal said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now ask yourself this question, what did that thief do? Was he baptized? Was he christened? Did he uh, understand uh, the Presbyterian Westminster uh, Confession and know it by heart? Did he understand the, uh, the Church of England 39 Articles? Uh, did he understand the First London Confession of the, of the particular Baptists in London? Did, did he, could he recite by heart the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? And the answer to all that is no. But he trusted in God alone, in Jesus alone. And at the end of the day, as important as I think it is to know much about church history and to understand the Scriptures in great depth, as I've just been advocating for, and to, to grow in your knowledge and understanding, as significant as that is, there'll come a moment when you sense that God is rejecting you, when the people around you are against you, and what you've got to do at that moment is trust in Him and Him alone. And this is the great truth, of course, that was rediscovered at the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, soli Christus, only Christ, only to Him be the glory. And this psalm, as we've been looking through the songs of victory, tells us then to be victorious, we need to go back to God's Word and trust in Him alone. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, as we think about these psalms together. We pray that you would reconnect our thoughts to the truth. We pray you reconnect our emotions to the truth. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who believe your word, trust your word, follow your word. And we pray this morning, Lord, that those who don't yet know you, they will put their trust in you alone, not in the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the beauty of the building, not in the, uh, the wonder of the, uh, of the aesthetics, not, not, in, not in what a person said to them or did not say to them, not in their disappointment about church or their excitement about church, but in you and you alone. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, show yourself again that banner, the cross over us that appeals to us that you love us and that you want us would you then, Lord, call by your Spirit people here this morning to bow their knee before you that they might sing songs of victory? And I pray that, Lord, for those who don't yet know you, but I pray it also for Lord, those who do, that you would give those who have been drifting because they sense that perhaps, God, you're not with them. Would you come to them now and cause them to repent and turn to you again that they might trust in you and you alone? And we pray, Lord, for us as a church that we will be a church that is solidly based upon your word and that has confidence in that. In every part of the church, we pray, Lord, you'd help us to know and grow in our understanding of your word. And we pray all these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.